Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Pastor, Pastor Scott is uh, preaching this morning down the road at Covenant Church, which is the church that is joining us uh, just in a little over a month. And so uh, this morning we have the great privilege of having our brother in Christ, uh, David Horner, come to bring the word. He's the founding pastor of Providence Church. So would you welcome him this morning to the stage as we sit under his teaching? Thanks so much, sir. What a joy to be back and be with you guys, and what an incredible opportunity to have your pastor skipping worship here. I mean, what a great opportunity for me. That is great. No, this, this whole merging of congregations is just so exciting. I, I cannot believe, and the testimony of that is going to spread through this city. It's just going to be fun to watch what God does with all that. So thank you for being a people who are just excited about watching God's hand work. Uh, we're thrilled to be a part of a city where God does things like this. So this morning, <clears throat> we have a chance to, to look at the Word together. You've been in a series on Hosea. I'm not going to steal Pastor Scott's thunder by trying to, to preach in the next in the sequence there, <clears throat> but I am stealing a verse out of chapter 10. Will that work? We're going to go to uh, Hosea 10 in just a few moments, but, but just to think about it, as you're looking at what God's doing here, and as you're looking at what's happening uh, in the potential uh, for what can take place as you move out of here and move over on the Strickland Road, basically you're going to have both ends of Strickland Road covered. You know, you got this thing going there. But what God's going to do through his people is something that is just exciting. Uh, the church is really a launch pad, not a destination. You know, we're, we're here not to say, well, it, it, it's working because people were coming here. No, only is they're coming here, getting equipped, and then sent there. That's the launching of the body of Christ. And so that's going to give you a new place to launch out in the work that God's given you to do. So I'm really thrilled to see how that's going to happen. But, but we want to look at our, our text today and another text in, in 2 Corinthians together to be able to answer a question that I think is pressing on the body of Christ in our day. The question really is, have we gone too far as a culture? Have we exceeded the reach of the grace of Christ? You see, what happens in churches in Raleigh and elsewhere in the nation and elsewhere in the world, there almost is the idea that, that we've crossed the last bridge and there's no return. The body of Christ sees itself somehow as a subculture it's trying to survive this huge flood of unrighteousness and evil that's just sweeping by us. And we're, we're hunkering down, we're, we're locking arms, we're singing, we're one in the spirit and hanging on till Jesus comes. But there's almost this sense of fatalism. It's too late. The culture has just gotten so wicked. And things are so bad that for us to even think that there's a possibility of revival, well, we have to articulate that we believe it. But let's be honest. In a lot of circumstances in our lives, we look and we really don't see how that's going to work. The media is controlled by voices other than ours. The academic realm, very much slanted against a biblical worldview. 
the morality of the culture in general has fallen so radically is that even in the body of Christ, the intrusion of immorality has hit us so hard that pastors now, when somebody comes and say, hey, I'd love to be married and I'd love for you to marry me, we have to ask questions that were unthinkable 25 years ago. We have to ask about their sexual purity and are you willing to live under the authority of Christ's control of that? Are you, are you going to do that? And, and we would never have asked that before. But it's so common now is that the culture just sort of assumes that that's the way it is. And so the question we're looking to answer this morning is what has to happen, really, for us to be able to get to the place where we actually anticipate God stirring things up and bringing about a movement of his spirit that would reclaim this land for his glory. Now, I'm not saying that in some kind of patriotic, nationalistic way. God can do what he wants to do without the United States of America, I promise you. And he's doing it. Millions and millions and millions of Christians in China will testify to that. And in Africa and India and other places in the world. But is it because we don't believe he can do it here? And so just a, a look at the trends Perhaps just a, a review quickly of, of some things that are going on uh, and, and are described in the things I'm going to point out to you. Uh, there, there is a perpetuation of this great difference between the rich and the poor, and, it's, and that gap is growing wider. And, and we see that, and we're, we marvel at that. We, we, we see that crime rates are continuing to rise even though the prisons are full, beyond capacity, no deterrent really is going on there. The upper class culture and the, the hierarchical echelons of industry are operating with a sense of fear that maybe the so-called underlings are going to someday rebel and cry no more. And so they're operating with a sense of fear there. Sexu sexual immorality, I've already mentioned, is just rampant, but it's, it's across all classes. It, it's not designated just one place or another. You see crimes being committed by children who are too young to prosecute, but they have to be prosecuted somehow or another. And so we're watching a, a culture trying to figure out what, what have we done? We're seeing that picture there. Uh, you see the, the rapid presence of porno pornography and, and salacious materials readily accessible everywhere. Meanwhile, churches are springing up like mushrooms after a wet rain all over the place, but with no appreciable impact on the culture. Pastors are preferring to be rock stars rather than men of prayer and the Word. They're interested more in, in cultural relevance and acceptance and applause than they are being the shepherds of the flock. Now, what I've just described to you, you're saying, yeah, boy, that's, that's hard. Oh, man, that's, that's tough. I'm not even talking about our culture, although I am. I'm talking about 1790 to 1840 London. The description I just gave you was a description that came out of London in the 18th and 19th century. You're thinking, you made that up. Yeah, I did. No, I did not. I mean, it's historically there. <clears throat> and in response to this, there were groups of Christians who were trying to sort out, has the salt lost its flavor? Has the light 
no longer the power to penetrate such darkness. And there were a group of evangelicals living in a suburb of London, a place called Clapham. Some of you may have heard of the Clapham sect. And the Clapham sect gathered together a group of evangelicals, mostly from the upper crust. These were lords and ladies who were gathered together who believed the Scriptures and began to ask God to do something. Now, one of the leaders of this group was a guy named William Wilberforce. Some of you have seen the movie about Wilberforce and seen what what happened in this guy's life. Well, a lot of that came out of the impact of this Clapham sect. And they started praying together, and they started asking God to work, and they started asking for God to break into the culture. Unheard of. I mean, it was too far gone. There's no way a culture, when it's that far away, is ever going to make a recovery. And things didn't happen immediately. Wilberforce was encouraged to do this because of conversations with a gentleman by the name of of John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He says, put this faith into practice. Find a way for what you believe to impact the world around you. Well, to draw that whole long episode to just a sort of a summary closing, out of that group, slavery was abolished in England. Wilberforce was the the voice in Parliament that kept beating that drum for 30 years. And right before he died, slavery was abolished by law in Great Britain. You see that there were things like gambling and dueling and things like that that were part of the culture there that were stopped cold because of the influence of the Clapham sect speaking up for Christ. There were things that were happening in the colonialism of Britain and what they were doing to peoples in other places that the voice of the Clapham sect started saying, no, we cannot do it that way anymore. And so the, the influence was, was pervasive. It started really hitting in a lot of places. Did it last a long time? No, within another generation or so, things had reverted back. But there was a great impact for a while, and revival came to that part of the world. And so the question for us is, are we farther down the road on the descent toward hell than they were? Amen. No. Some people say, well, isn't humanity getting worse? The question is answered very quickly. Was Adam totally depraved or not? He was. So what's worse than total depravity? Total plus? No. Total is total. I mean, you know, it doesn't get worse than total depravity. And so we share the sin nature of the first family, you know? So here we have this today. We have a promise from God that there is a way for us to see his hand work in a mighty way if we will do what he's asked us to do. And so Hosea comes with a message. He's speaking to a decadent people, Israel, at a time when they have fallen so far from God that the general consensus would be they're too far gone. God, the best thing you could do would just be to snuff them and go on and do something else. And so the passage that I'm looking at in Hosea, in chapter 10, verse 12, Hosea comes and offers the remedy. He says, here's the formula by which this can be flipped around. And Scott will get to this in a few weeks as he gets to to chapter 10. But right now, just this verse, and I'm only going to go into the slightest surface of it because I I know that there's no way I can touch it like Scott can, so I'm just going to touch the surface. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord 
that he may come and rain righteousness on you. Key phrase in there, it's time. Now is the time. Didn't look like the time. Didn't feel like the time. But Hosea says from the prophetic words of God, now. Let's go after it. Meanwhile, fast forward. Corinth. Paul's day. He's writing his second letter to them. And in chapter 6, he's writing verses 1 and 2, these words. He says, working together with him, Christ, we appeal to you not to, re- not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, Corinth was the buzzword for decadence. So those people were operating in an entirely Corinthian way. That was not a compliment. Uh, There are actually churches named Corinth Baptist or Corinth whatever else, and you're thinking, like, what were you thinking? (laughs) Oh, we go to that decadent, horrible, sinful, divided church called Corinth, you know. And why would you choose that? I don't know. But at any rate, Paul is writing to them, and he's saying the same thing that Hosea said centuries before. Now is the time. Seriously? Now? In the middle of this mess? With all the division, with all the immorality, with all the gross disobedience to God is present in this awful secular city? Now is the time? Now. Hosea, now, God? With this people being like they are now, what in the world are you thinking? Can you actually do this? And here's where we are, 21st century, asking the same question. God, can you really? And here's the sad news. In the evangelical church in our land, the conclusion largely is, we don't think so. So we hunker down in our bunkers, holy huddles, a very frightened subcultural believers in something that we're not really sure is going to make a difference. So well, that's a little strong, probably too strong. But it's something we need to think about, don't you think? Do we really believe that God can and will bring reins of righteousness on our land? There are three pieces in this passage. <clears throat> I'm only really going to have time to, to preach about one of them. I'll address the first one in a little more detail, but the second one would take most of our attention. But the first one basically is saying, now is the time to seek the Lord. Was there ever a time when that's not true? (laughs) Now is the time to seek the Lord in prayer, is what he's really pointing to. Now is the time to seek the Lord in prayer. Second piece of it is, now is the time to break up your fallow ground. We're not even sure what fallow ground is. That's why I'm preaching about this. We want to talk about what fallow ground is. Basically, that means that you've got to deal with personal and corporate brokenness. You've got to break up the things where our strongholds are, are there in, in, in our lives. And, and then the last piece is the positive side of it. He says, now is the time to enjoy his righteous pleasure, to, to be living with abundant joy and let that actually permeate your life and, and not enter into all the cynical, skeptical conversations of the culture around you, even within the body of Christ, where we can't really think of anything good to say. We, we find ourselves falling into the pit of the abyss of griping about the status of things instead of saying, God is on the throne. And we can trust him. And if we find that his pattern is followed, his results of revival will come. 
Well, here, here we go. Let's look at this. Like I said, we're going to focus primarily on that second piece, but I, I've got to start with the first. It's time to seek the Lord. Here's where we have the issue of prayerlessness that pervades the body of Christ. Nobody wants to be asked, frankly, how long do you pray every day? We don't, we don't want anybody knowing that. <clears throat> do you believe in prayer? Absolutely. Do you, are you committed to prayer? Yes. Do you believe biblically in the way to pray according to the Scriptures? Couldn't be more convinced. Have you read books on prayer? Oh, everyone I could get my hands on. You've been to seminars? Yeah. Do you pray? Sure, sure. Do. Yeah. How, how much do you pray? You know, and, and so nobody wants to talk about this, this piece of it. And so what happens? Prayerlessness characterizes the church. And we're wondering why the power of God is not operating among us. And yet we don't really believe enough about prayer to practice it. And the prayerlessness results in emptiness. And we find ourselves dealing with, with hearts that are emptied of confidence that we ought to have. We're really not that confident about what eternal life means in terms of its promise to us. We're not certain really about answered prayer because we think that we've asked so many things that didn't turn out that we're not sure that we can really trust God to ask the things that we want to ask. And so we, in unanswered prayer, find ourselves just emptied of any confidence that he's ever going to answer. We, we have no certainty of forgiveness for sin. And so we, we walk around with these heavy loads of guilt. Could God forgive that? Could he actually delight himself in me knowing what I've been like? There's no certainty of forgiveness that we have for sin. There's no certainty of, of Christ being the living, reigning, sovereign Savior. There's, I, know he's, I know he's Lord. Do you really? Mm, no. Because if he were, why would it be looking like it is here? You know, and so we have our doubts, all born of prayerlessness and that emptiness we have in any kind of confidence in him. We, we have empty convictions that don't really result in any action. Conviction results in action, always does. The absence of any action on the basis of what we say we have convictions about is basically a, a disarming separation of those things. See, anything we believe, we do. Anything else is just talk. And so empty convictions, we say, we affirm, we talk, sound doctrine, we preach the truth of God's Word, and yet when it comes down to convictional action, we, we leave it for the next time. We're empty of, of our prayer closets. <laughs> they're either empty when we're there or empty when we're not there. When we're not there, it's just because we haven't set a priority to do it. But when we are there, frequently they're just as empty. Empty of focus, empty of meaning, empty of vitality, empty of confidence that it's going to make any difference. It's just we're, we're there with the words but not the heart. And so all that comes from this prayerlessness. He says, look, now's the time. Now is the time to seek the Lord. Now is the time to get about the business of praying so that the confessions that you're making with your lips are actually borne out in how you're living your life. It's not a time for words without meaning and doctrines without power. It's a time to seek the Lord and become men and women of prayer. And here's what will happen, and I promise you, because I've been there and I do that myself, is that we will hear this part of the message this morning and say, you know what, that is exactly right. That, that's, I, yes, amen to that. So how's your prayer life going to be different tomorrow? Excuse me? 
I mean, are, are you going to change the way you pray as a result of any sense that this is true, that now's the time to seek him at a different level? See, and if we affirm that with our lips and don't do anything about it in our lives, what happens is that the, that the fire of that message that God intends to melt our hearts into conformity with his actually will take hearts of clay and harden them. And the next time we hear that message, we hear, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. And the next time we hear that message, we don't even hear it because we're working our iPhone because we've heard that part and we don't even have to listen anymore. And the hardness settles in and, and prayerlessness takes over. And so he says here, and then you look at the passage in 2 Corinthians and the same ideas. This is the time to seek the Lord in personal prayer. You're going to have to pray. Uh, uh, praise God for this prayer initiative that you guys are going through now. It's a time to seriously be on our knees before God, not because it looks good, not because the shell is important for appearances, but because we rely entirely upon God. Amen. We have to rely on him. And so that's where Hosea is coming. He says, it's time to seek the Lord. We, we got to go there. Now, Here's, here's the, the piece that we want to focus most of our time this morning. He says, now is not just the time for prayer and seeking the Lord. Now is the time to break up the fallow ground. It's a time for personal and corporate brokenness. Now, just, just to back up, oh, last time I was here was in March, and you were coming toward the end of your study of 1 Peter, and that particular Sunday, the message was on suffering. Okay, great. So, March, I preach in suffering. Come back in May, and I'm preaching on brokenness. Gloomy Gus is here. You know, I'm just like, what? Do, you, do you have a positive message to preach? Well, yeah, but, but understand what positive begins with. Positive here begins with a sense of breaking down all that is in the way of us becoming what God calls us to be. So first is just understanding what fallow ground is. It is unused, uncultivated, unproductive land. It needs to be plowed up. It needs to be broken up. It needs to be different than it currently is because otherwise when we sow the seeds of righteousness on it, they just bounce right off. He says, so there has to be a breaking up of the ground. Back in the days when, when farmers would plow their fields with a mule and a horse and the hand plow digging through the furrows in there, they'd come upon a huge stump or a boulder and they're going along. It's just like, mm, I don't think so. And then they just go around it and keep moving. <clears throat> It was way too much trouble to try to break up that stump or to somehow or another uh, break down that, that huge boulder in the way. And so it was easier to just go around it. And it didn't really hurt that much, because, but it really messed up the lines in the, in the field. Well, in the spiritual realm, we have these huge rocks that get in the way of being where God wants us to be, doing what he's called us to do. And he is saying here, break it up. Break up those fallow grounds. Break up those boulders. Don't just plow to it and then go around it. As long as it's present in your life and as long as it's being uh, an obstacle in the way of what I'm trying to do, you're not going to experience the fullness of what I want to have in you. So let's talk about breaking up the fallow ground, including the boulders, including the stumps, and let's deal with it. What, what would that look like? <clears throat> Nobody wants to be broken. I don't. Do you? I mean, that's something I, I live my life trying to avoid being broken. It's just, it's just human nature. I don't like that part of it. And so I, I find myself sometimes feeling like I've got a broken heart. People disappointed me or people did something that, that hurt me. You know what I'm talking about? 
somebody, somebody said something, somebody that you thought was your close friend or, or your compadre, and, and then they turned on you. They didn't even think about it, but, but they, they did you in. That, that hurts. It's brokenness, brokenheartedness. Or maybe a sense of abandonment. Or you were like, come on, everybody, let's go. And there's nobody else with you. And life becomes very lonely for you. You're learning what happened, and, and it, it's a breaking experience. Or you try a few things in your career or in your family or, or in your relationships, and it's just like swimming upstream. It's just, and finally, you just say, look, I'm done with this. I quit. I'm not going to do that anymore. You're, you're broken. You just think, I, I, can't, I can't go there. It's not worth it. Or your own sin, that besetting sin, the thing that you keep having to deal with, Maybe it's your temper. Maybe it's your tongue. Maybe it's uh, sexual lustful thoughts. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's material. I don't know what it is. But you think you got it, and then bam, you fall again. I've just I've, I've figured out a system how to beat this. Well, you already just defined that you're going to lose because it's, it's a spiritual battle, not one that you can put scaffolding around and keep yourself held up from a human perspective. And so we get there and sin takes us down again. And we're embarrassed. Nobody may even know but you and God, but we're embarrassed by it. And, and we feel broken by it. That's what I'm talking about. There, there needs to be a brokenness here. We just, we just feel like we gotta, we gotta find a way to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps and the Lord's just going, no, be broken and let me restore you. So let's look at this whole idea <clears throat> of why brokenness is so important. First, it's to be near the heart of God. It may seem strange to say that, but to be broken is to be near the heart of God. Psalm 51, verse 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now that seems odd for us who want to be a holy put together people. We got our, we got our act together. We understand how this works. We, we got the whole thing, the face, everything. We're dressed up. We're looking good. We're not broken. We're, we're fine. And God says, you know what? That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for broken and contrite hearts. Those are the folks I'm not going to despise. They're going to be the ones who can turn to me and their lives are going to be turned upside down. <clears throat> And we look at him and say, well, that's an upside-down life anyway. He says, no, I'm talking about turning it upside down so that the right side, the godly side, comes to the top. He said, a servant's heart's got to break. If you, long, if you think that you're in control, you're never really going to be submissive to your master. So the servant has to have a broken heart. That means that he's going to have to go through some trouble. And those trials will be hard for him. <clears throat> that's a part of it. There will be painful periods for the servant. He's thinking that he's got it all together, and then he goes through some, some struggles in, in a painful context, and he doesn't like that, but it's a part of the necessity of becoming a servant. There, there are these incapacitating insecurities in our lives where, where we think we got it, and then we realize we don't, and then we're, we're scared to try anything else because we don't want to fail again, and so we just kind of hunker down into the safety zones in our lives, and I'm not doing anything that I know I can't really pull off comfortably. And the servant has to be broken of that to be able to serve the master and do what the master says. And so he comes to us and says, part of the reason for that mentality that 
kind of weighs against you really having a servant mentality for God is that your sinfulness needs to be broken out of you. And so the scriptures begin to help us understand what has to happen for a sinner's heart to be broken. If you're going to break up the fallow ground, that heart is pretty useless until it's been broken. That heart is not going to be productive of spiritual fruit until it's been broken of its sinfulness, of its pride, of its ego, of its self-sustaining, self-sufficient attitude. And so God begins to help us understand with a series of, of ideas that appear throughout the Scripture. You could actually build an entire theology, biblical theology of brokenness. There's a wealth of information all through the Word. That's why we're going to focus on this particular part of it in our time this morning. The, the first is that, that the sinner's heart has got to break down. He's got to break it down. And so that means that something is going to have to happen to get it down to the bare essentials of nothingness so that God can begin to build it back up. As long as it thinks it's capable of doing what it wants to do on its own merit and its own power, it's not going to turn to God. It's not going to be there. And so it has to be broken down. And so you see a variety of places where, where that's described in the Scriptures. One is the broken cisterns of Jeremiah. He says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, evil one, and two, I being the one they've forsaken in the fountain of living waters, and what they've substituted, two, is that they have hewn for themselves cisterns. You know what a cistern is? Not the opposite of brethren, but cistern, the place where you, you know, they gather water, rain gathers in it, and it's sort of a, a reservoir. Um, houses used to have that as a place for fresh water. And he says, but they, they've hewn for themselves cisterns, but they're broken cisterns, and they can hold no water. And so one of the things we have to see happen is that we have to recognize that there's going to be a breakdown in our lives where we who think we've got this reservoir that we can count on, God says that's not anything but stagnant. That's not the river of living water, the fountain of living water that he's described in Jeremiah 2.13, but it is a stagnation pond, <clears throat> a pool that you can't count on. You have to break you down and realize that your cistern that you're counting on won't hold water. And then over in Isaiah, he talks about broken jars. <clears throat> they can't dip water. <clears throat> I'm going to have to get some water now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> you, you ready for this? This is not a part of the uh, sermon. This is a part of drainage. <laughs> not cisterns. Okay. So <clears throat> now we can go forward. This will be easier when I'm not coughing the whole time. He says these, these jars have broken. And so in verse 14 of chapter 30, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a sherd will not be found among its pieces, not a sherd big enough to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. He said, it's, you're, you're like a people who've been totally shattered. I mean, you're just dust. There's not even the tiniest piece that you could get wet. It's just dust. He said, that's what's got to happen to my people. They've got to get out of the idea that there's something I can do to kind of pull something together. He said, there's nothing left. So the cisterns are broken. Won't hold water. The, the, the jars are so smashed that there's nothing left there. And then Jesus in John 15 talks about these branches that are broken off from the vine, right? What does he say has to happen with the broken branches? They're gathered up and burned. They're useless. They can't bear fruit because they're not a part of the vine anymore. They're, they're broken down. They're torn off. They're useless. They're worthless anymore. 
And so the Lord is saying to us, I want you to break up your fallow ground. That means that starting point is to be broken down to the sense that you don't even think for a moment that you have the capacity to do this on your own. As long as you think that, you're not going to trust me. As long as you think that, you're not going to pray as you need to pray and depend upon my word and the power of my spirit in the way you need to. So you need to be broken down. There needs to be a destruction of the self-sufficiency of the human heart. Sinners' hearts have got to be broken down, but not only broken down, they need to be broken open. And that's the second picture he gives us here. And broken open to the reality that, that my sin and my lack of being willing to be broken is just an indication that, that somehow or another I'm not open to the reality that what I'm doing is dishonoring to God and is falling well short of his glory, which the scriptures describe as what? Sin. And so, again, Psalm 51 he says, Lord, I've got to understand this, but because my heart is refusing to be broken open, I'm not really willing to admit that when I sin, it's not just a little thing. It's not a big deal. Nobody was injured. Nobody was hurt. It was in my own heart. I just dealt with it, and I'm fine now. He says, no, here's the reality. Against you, God, against you and you only, I have sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. You're justified when you speak, and you're blameless when you judge me, because what I did was just so wrong. Lord, open the light of heaven into the dark places of my heart and show me. Break open that part that's closed off. Break open that closet door that's shut to everybody. Break it open and let the light of heaven penetrate there. Lord, take the, the fog <clears throat> in which I live and break it open by the breath of your spirit blowing through there getting that mess out of the way so that I can acknowledge against you and you only have I sinned. Does that mean that it doesn't impact others? That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, but the, the principal party who is offended my, by my sin is God himself. You need to be broken down. You need to be broken open, he says, to that reality. And thirdly, you need to let that light break through in a way that really makes a significant difference Breaking through that fog, finding the redeeming grace and love of Jesus Christ will indeed get you to the place <clears throat> where you're ready now for the fourth piece, and that is to break out. For the breaking out of his grace, the breaking out of his power, the breaking out of his mercy, the breaking out of his, his reins of renewal and righteousness pouring out on you. He says that's when it starts working. That's when the, the happening of his grace begins to impact the culture around you. And you look at various pictures in the scriptures. You remember the alabaster vial the lady brought when she came to worship Jesus? It was in the box, but nobody smelled it. Why? Because it was in the box. What had to happen for her to anoint Jesus and for that fragrance to come into the room? It had to be broken open. And then there was a breaking out of that sweet aroma. Everything closed down. Beautiful, valuable, crucial, excellent perfumes. Not the cheap dime store variety, but the kind that you just smell a lot of it. In the cheap dime store time, you get a headache. This is the kind that's just, ooh, that's fine. And it just filled the room because there was a breaking out of that vial. Or when Jesus took the, the fishes and the loaves, as long as they were intact, they were not going to feed 5,000 people. What had to happen to the fish and the loaves? 
the hand of the Savior began to break them and then give them, break them and then give them, break them and give them. 5,000 people were fed to the full and basketfuls left over. When Jesus starts breaking out, look out. Powerful thing. And then we come to the Lord's table, Lord's Supper time, and we take the, the bread, and what do we say? This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why was that important? Because without Christ being broken for us, there would have been no salvation for us. The sinless lamb had to die. He had to be broken. He had to have his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sin. And so in each case, the breaking out comes after the breaking after there has been the destruction of something, then the fullness of what God wanted to release is breaking out of us the way God wants us to do. We've got to believe that that power of God wanting to break out through his church is present here, even this day, in this people, even in your heart. That's what he wants to have happen. And so to be broken is to be like Christ. He who was broken for us... This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, even in the thing that unites our hearts in communion together at the Lord's table, he's saying, this is what happens with me, and it must happen for you. There needs to be the understanding that there's blessing and not curse in being broken. This is not to be avoided. This is to be embraced. This is to be welcomed. This is to be rejoiced in. And so he says, remember the blessing of being broken. When you're talking about being broken at the master's touch, your picture has to, if you know anything about horses, you've got to go there to think of what has to happen with a wild stallion to be useful. What's, what's got to happen? He's got to be broken. We've got to break that stallion. Why? We want to break that stallion so that instead of pursuing its own will, doing its own thing, it yields eventually to the master's touch, to the one who's the trainer, so that he doesn't have to hit the horse to make you do what he wants anymore. Once that stallion is broken, the, the most gentle tug of the reins in either direction, or maybe even just the movement of a knee in one side or the other, or just the whisper of a... And the horse knows what's, he's broken of his own will and submits entirely to the master's will. That's what he wants to do with us so that the, the, the sensitivity to the direction of what the Spirit of God wants to do among us, once we're broken, we become very keenly alerted to the slightest inclination from the Lord as to what he wants us to do and how and where he wants that to go. Sensitivity to sin awakens us to things that we never even thought of before once we're broken. Sensitivity and awareness of the power available to us as believers through the resurrection. All of a sudden, we're alive to that. It's not just a doctrine we affirm. It's a reality we begin to live when we've been broken by the master's touch. And then we come to that place where we're restored by the master's healing. Once we're broken, then we can be healed. We don't experience the healing if we don't submit ourselves to the breaking. When I was four years old, I broke my right arm for the first time. Don't remember much about that except we were being disobedient children, running around the house, doing what we weren't supposed to be doing. I fell, broke my arm. Eight years old, I remember it vividly. Same arm, Christmas Day. I'd just gotten a new football jersey. 
and I loved it. Number 86. It was great. It's the first classy jersey I'd ever had. It wasn't a t-shirt. It was a football jersey. We're in the backyard playing, make this spectacular catch, come down, fall on my right arm, break it. Right again. No question, it's broken. Arms are not supposed to go like that. You know, and so we go to the hospital, and <clears throat> this is archaic, and you know, I'm old when I tell you this, but to put me to sleep before setting the bone, they put that little mask on me. I don't know if it was either or what. It was a either or. I'm not sure which, but anyway, it was something there. They put it in the mask, and he's, the doctor says, now I'm going to start counting down from 100, and tell me when you don't hear me anymore. That's like, if you're not here this morning, raise your hand. I mean, what, what, what kind of instruction is that to an eight-year-old boy? What? And so he starts, you know, can you hear me? You know, and I, yes, I can hear you. You know, 89, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. And then I hear him say 80, yes, 8, 87, 86. Can you hear me? I didn't say anything. Pow! I can hear you. <laughs> I should have said something. I can, I, can, I can hear you. You know, I still hate the Verizon commercials. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Yes! Yes, I can. No more pain. Don't do this. But what had to ha- he had to say, there's going to be some pain in the healing process, and I, I want you to know that there's an acknowledgement here that this thing is broken. And in order to fix it, it's going to take a skilled physician's touch to make it right. And making it right may have some pain. But hey, I'm 66. It works. 58 years this thing's been working. Because that master of medicine fixed my arm by breaking my comfort for a moment to set things right. Christ wants to do that with us. He wants us to experience his healing. So in Isaiah 57, it says, Thus says the high an exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. Now that's a great introduction to who's talking here. Listen to that again. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with a contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. If you're broken, if you're contrite, God's saying, I may dwell up here, but I'm coming down where you are to fix it. Don't be afraid of being broken. Because by the restoration of the master's healing, you get shaped into the master's image. And that's what he's looking to do for us to be the body of Christ, is to be conformed to his image, which sometimes requires breaking things that we hold dear to be able to experience what he knows is much more dear, and that is the glory of his name. And so when we have seen that now is the time to seek the Lord, and we have prayed, our eyes begin to open to how God can use us as a church to impact our culture, and how it can transform our own individual lives, and our own family lives. Now is the time to seek the Lord in prayer. Now is the time, he then says, to break up the fallow ground. Don't be afraid to be broken. Because that's when the healing and transforming and powerful work of the Spirit of God begins to unfold. And then he says, that last piece, now is the time to enjoy his righteous pleasure. To come into the the fullness of abundant joy that he promises us. He says, you were to do this in verse 12 of Hosea again. 
You are to do this until he comes to rain righteousness on you. And when God rains something on us, he generally does not spit out a drop at a time. It generally comes with a flood, the fountain of living water, the stream of living water coming. He wants that to come down upon us in the fullness of it. Last week, Kathy and I had a chance to go to the Grand Canyon for the first time. Magnificent, uh, um, unbelievable experience. And then we went up to one of the slot canyons called the Lower Antelope Canyon. And as we're going into that canyon, it's just like, you know, about 40 feet down. And you're walking through these, this maze of walls coming through there. The guy said, if I tell you we need to get out of here, don't ask questions. We're getting out of here. Okay? We're going like, sure, you're the boss. What do you, you know? And he said, 1997, a storm happened just south of here, big rainstorm while people were coming through here, and people didn't take warning. They were told to get out, and they didn't get out. That storm up there gathered on the, the red rocks and came flying down the wash and flowed into this canyon with a column of water 12 feet high rushing so fast, 12 people were killed in that, just that moment. And the guide who didn't take them out when he was supposed to was found, splayed upon a rock at the end of the canyon, stripped of every article of clothing he had. Just the power of that wall of water coming down there. And God says, I have a wall of water that gives life, not death. I want to rain righteousness on you. So you seek me. And when you seek me, what you're going to find is that, that your confession and your conviction of sin leads to cleansing and forgiveness. And when you experience that, the repentance and the restoration are going to lead to righteousness and peace. And when you experience that, the, the gratitude and the joy that are going to be in your life are going to result in a new life filled with the righteousness and the brightness of the light of Christ. And the culture cannot remain the same around you when you start living out the life Christ has for you. And so here's the question back we started with. Do we believe this can happen? Do we really honestly believe that God can do this? Because the, the fiery heat of that brokenness is something that if we don't deal with it properly, that same heat, which will melt the heart and produce a, a an attitude of, of dependence upon him and reliance upon him. That heart will melt. That same heat, if that heart is not composed of the purity of the wax there, if it's got the clay in it, that same heat will harden the heart. And we will not see the impact of God in our culture. And we won't see it in our own homes. And we won't see it in our own neighborhoods. And we won't even see it in our own lives. And so God says, now is the time. Don't wait for another generation. Don't start sowing seeds now thinking, well, someday, someday. No, you sow with a view to righteousness now. You seek the Lord now. You break up the fallow ground now. Why? Because now is the time. Paul says the same thing in the midst of a horrible culture in Corinth. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now watch God work when you do it his way. Let's pray. Father, that's what we want. That's what we need, and that's what we long for more than anything else. We don't want to be that ineffective, tolerated subculture within the broader culture that has no impact and has no influence for Christ. Lord, we want to be the people who rise up with one voice and declare the glory, the majesty, and the greatness of your name. And so, Lord, do what you will among us, and we will praise you. 
from the bottom of our hearts that we get to have the reign of righteousness like a flood pour over our souls and bring glory and honor to your name. May it be so here for Christ's sake. Amen.